So we're going to finish chapter 15 and then, Lord willing, try to finish chapter 16. Um, I'm not going to go through all this again, but as you know, the previous paragraph that we last week was the crucifixion of Jesus and then the results of that crucifixion and the primary results that are focused on in the end of chapter 15 is the tearing of the temple curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies. And then secondly, the exclamation of the centurion when he says, truly this man was the son of God, which is an extraordinary statement. I don't remember if I covered this, but I'm going to do it again anyway. Verses 40 and 41 is... Uh, is an important insert, and all the Gospels mention this. But there were also women on looking on from a distance, among them Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph, and Salome. Salome is the mother of James and, uh, and John. She's the wife of Zebedee, who I think you know, the sons of Zebedee. Now, the emphasis here is something that each New Testament writer goes out of the way to drive this home. The importance of women in the ministry of Jesus and the importance of women in even the witnesses to both the crucifixion and, and then as you'll see in just a minute, to the resurrection. And that's important because in the ancient world, both the Roman Greco-Roman world and in the, especially in the Jewish world, women's testimony was not accepted. In a court of law, they, both civilizations follow due process procedure in terms of law. And women's testimony were generally not acknowledged. It wasn't, it wasn't trusted, which is really an incendiary thing to say in the 21st century, isn't it? So, but the, the New Testament goes out of its way to stress the importance of women. In Jesus' ministry, at the, resurrection, at the crucifixion, and now as we're about to see at the resurrection. So I'm just mentioning that. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And again, that just stressing the very important role that women played. And if you go and look at the early verses of chapter 8 in the Gospel of Luke, women were the primary financial supporters of Jesus' ministry. And Luke even mentions their name, and one of them was the wife of an official in the court of Herod Antipas, who was the governor of the Galilee region. And so, I mean, that's just, I'm not going to dwell any more on that, but that's an important New Testament emphasis, the role of women in testifying to what happened in, in the life of Jesus. And this is and verse 42 through I the end. Oh, Woody, did you have a question? Yeah, I do. Uh, I, I, read, I read some out of uh, the chapter, the chapters that we were going to read today. Good. And, uh, I seen that they, uh, I didn't see where they, did Mark just leave out the part of them whipping Jesus, giving him all those lashes with the, with the, uh, you know, the whip? Did they? Yes. But the other four have, the other four, uh, the other three? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the other Gospels, Woody, do do stress that all all Mark does is mention it in in two words, and that's it. But in in Matthew's Gospel and in uh, I believe it's Luke's Gospel, we have a very detailed account of his uh, scourging, which is really what you're talking about, right? Yes, I and uh, I, I didn't want him to get scourged if we didn't have to, but I thought it was in all the all the all these books. 
of uh, yes, yes, gospel. Yes, it is. All Mark does is mention it, but the others go into some detail about it. He was asking a question about the scourging of Jesus. All right, let's look at verse 42 through, uh, well, really the end of the chapter. This is the Mark's record of the burial of Jesus. Now, it's, I don't know how important this is to you, but it's important, I think, for us to understand the context. In Deuteronomy 21, I believe it's verse 23, but in Deuteronomy 21, it stipulates that the burial of a corpse, of a Jewish corpse, a person who's a Jew who dies, is to occur uh, that day. When they die, they are to be buried. And that's why, uh, that is still, by the way, that is pretty largely practiced in Israel today, uh, that when a person dies, they are buried that day, at the, at the most within 24 hours. And so it's, therefore, it's kind of an important factor. And when evening had come, since it was a day of preparation, that's Friday, that is the day before the Sabbath. So the day of preparation, because the Sabbath, remember, begins, uh, begins sundown Friday through sundown Saturday. So this is during the day, to call that the day of preparation. That's very important. So you've got two things there. He's dead, and it's the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. They've got to get that body buried. <laughs> now, typically, uh, and again, this is the tradition of the Jews, now the tradition of Rome, when a, when a criminal was crucified, and in this case, Jesus was charged with sedition, they would leave the body on the cross for days, weeks even. And that's kind of a horrible thing to imagine, because as you can probably think, uh, scavengers will come, birds will come. I mean, the body is rotting. And Rome did that to, really as a deterrent. Uh, this occurred over the empire, but especially in a key area like Judea and Jerusalem. This deterrent of a body hanging for days, weeks, months, this is what happens when you go against Rome. But this the Jewish tradition now is running into what the Romans normally did. And so verse 43 says, Joseph of Arimathea, Arimathea was a little town about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. Remember, the word council is another word for the Sanhedrin. So he's a Pharisee, probably. He's on the Sanhedrin, who is also looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So you learn two things here about Joseph of Arimathea. Number one, he is, he is a, quote, secret, close quote, disciple of Jesus. He's on the Sanhedrin. But it says, John, uh, Mark says, he's looking for the kingdom of God. So that, that tells us here is a devout, pious Jew. And for reasons that we do not know, we do not know anything about him up to this point, but he wants to take charge of burying Jesus. Now, he has a close friend, and John's gospel tells us who that is. Mark doesn't tell us that, I don't believe. Who's his close friend? You know, you just don't know you know. Nicodemus. His close friend is Nicodemus. And Nicodemus will come and help Joseph in the burial procedure. All right. The other thing we learn is it says, uh, Mark says of him, he took courage. Um, this was an extraordinary thing to ask Pilate. Because as I said, the Jewish tradition based on Deuteronomy 21 
is smashing into what the Romans normally did. And so for him to go to the governor of Judea and ask him for the body, that took courage. Now, depending on what mood Pilate is in, whether he's going to be willing to even let him talk to him. But anyway, and so it says, and summoning the centurion, he, that would be Pilate, ask him, that is a centurion, whether he was already dead. Now, that's an appropriate question, and it's just interesting that Mark is just inserting that here. Some of the other gospel writers don't tell us that. And it isn't that important, but it just, it, it tells you how important these eyewitness accounts are, even to the extent that we heard, learned that Pilate wanted to confirm that Jesus was actually dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And one of the incurious questions about this is this the same centurion who previously, way up in verse 39, had made that confession. We don't know that. It, we just don't know. It sounds reasonable that it might be, but we just don't know because there, there were many uh, Roman troops in Jerusalem because of the Passover and Unleavened Bread Festival and all that was involved in that. So it could have, I mean, there have been many, many centurions because the centurion is over 100 men. But it would just be a curious question. Is it the same centurion? Yeah. Uh, isn't it possible? I mean, the reason why he asked uh, was because sometimes they would linger for uh, a long time on that cross. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I said. It's the Roman way of doing things is running up against the Jewish law of Deuteronomy 21. When someone dies, they are to be buried that day. Yeah. So it's those two things. And so Rome's, as I mentioned, Rome's normal practice is the body hangs on the cross for days, weeks. So to go to Pilate and ask for that, particularly with all the public relations issues that have accompanied this, that took courage. Okay, so death has been confirmed. Pilate says, yep, you can take the corpse. So Joseph brought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And, and uh, let, me, let me comment on that if I could for just a minute. Um, you and I don't quite have the same thinking about body and about burial and so on that the, that the first century Jew did. Most Jews could not afford the type of tomb that Joseph had. It tells us that this is Joseph's tomb. That tells us, too, number one, that he's a very, very wealthy man. And two, that wherever his tomb is, it's close to the cross. It's close to Golgotha. It's really fascinating. I wish I could get, we'd all get on a plane now, and I'd take you to Jerusalem. And we go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and we go down to the basement. And I think you go down quite deep. But what you can see down there are all of these caves that were burial tombs in the first century. And that's why we're, we're pretty certain that where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is located, which is on the west side of, west of Temple Mount, that, that those burial spots, that's where Joseph's uh, family tombs were. And what wealthy people did is they would hewn, cut out of the rock these tombs, and they go fairly deep. And each one of the tombs, excuse me, each one of the walls of the tomb, once you enter, would have a ledge about this wide, maybe a little wider, not too much wider. 
and they would be like in a square or a long rectangle. Some of them were oval, but that's even more expensive. And so you would, as they're doing here, you wrap it in linen or in a shroud, and you lay the body on that tomb. Now, usually, we will read about this later. Usually, they put a lot, they pack this linen shroud with, with spices. Because as the body's decaying, it smells. And this would neutralize the smell. They would wait a year. And then the family would go back into the tomb, unwrap all the linen shroud, and so on. By that time, the body has deteriorated. It's still, you know, most of it is deteriorated. Then what they would do is they wash the bones and then place the bones in a, in a box called an ossuary. And that ossuary was the container of the family bones going back possibly two or three generations at the most. And so this is kind of, so Joseph's family, they had this family tomb. And this is normally what happened. And we have just found absolutely dozens and dozens of these all over the area of, of Jerusalem. But this one, we're pretty certain we know where Jesus was buried. And so this cutting it out of raw, I want you to understand this was elaborate, it was costly, and Joseph is laying Jesus in his family tomb. And in the book of Isaiah chapter 53, and in Psalm 22, it says that Messiah will be buried in a rich man's tomb. Again, the fulfillment of prophetic scripture is, is being carried out here. And so then what Joseph did, this is very typical, and he rolled, he would be Joseph Aram, at the end of verse 46, rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. That, again, is the normal thing to do. They would cut a little ledge, and it would just be like you're rolling it, like you roll a big ball. You roll it in front of the tomb. And, that, again, it, it's solid scavenger animals and birds can't get in and all that stuff. And sometimes they did that with Jesus, too, Matthew tells us. They sealed it. They put a Roman seal on it. Mark doesn't tell us that. But Matthew tells us that. And there were guards set up. Again, Mark doesn't go into that. And so you have this final sentence in the, in the end of chapter 15. Mary Magdalene and mother, Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid, meaning they were observing this. They were not participating in it. They're observing what Joseph did in burying Jesus. Were these uh, soldiers placed as you would enter? This area where you said you no, down, or were no. they right in front of they're, that? They're outside the tomb, right in front of that stone that's rolled across it. Yeah. Yep. And Matthew, Matthew is Matthew gives us the most information about those soldiers. Mm -hmm. That was a that was a fairly unusual thing to do. Uh, it really was. But the the, the the Sanhedrin requested this of Pilate. These guys are saying he's going to be resurrected. Would you put guards in front to make sure they don't steal the body and, get, you know, perform a hoax on all of us? And so Pilate agrees to that. All right. And again, yeah, Jim, please. Yeah, I can't remember which sentence you're referring to that I uttered. If you're in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and you go down it's quite deep, but you go down the number of steps, a couple layers to it, you'll see a number of caves. Throughout all of Jerusalem, we, there have been found dozens and dozens of these burial-type caves. They're all over. But the one that 
is at the base of the of the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, over which that church was built. Because uh, that, that goes back to the 300s, and it goes back to the t- early 200s, even late 100s, where the oral testimony was: this is this is where Jesus is buried, was buried. Excuse me. And when now I'm telling you some history here, you may not be interested in this or not. But when Constantine in 313 came to know Christ and issued in 315 that order making Christianity legitimate in the empire. He then commissioned his mother, Helena, to go to the Holy Lands and find all of the sites associated with Jesus. This, this woman is 82 years old. She does that. And so she finds all of these sites, and she's consulting people. Uh, she finds the Church of the Nativity where Jesus was born, over which, I'm, I'm, let me rephrase that. She finds where Jesus was born, and then they church, build the Church of the Nativity over that, which you can still see today. And the foundation of that goes back to Constantine. The same thing happened with the building of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And she is supposed to have brought back to Rome fragments of the cross of Jesus. Now, whether that was actually that we went from that. And the other thing she does, I'm, I'm telling you more here than maybe you're interested, but it's really a fascinating story. The the steps, the steps that were part of the ruins of the, um, it's, it's the building on the northwest corner of Temple Mount, where uh, uh, where the court was held under Pilate and so on. Those steps, she brought those steps to Rome, and those steps you can walk up. If you go to the Lateran Church, uh, it's what's called Saint John Lateran Church. Right next to it is the Sacra Sanctum. You walk up those steps on your knees. Maybe you've seen pictures of that. They're the steps that are supposed to be the steps Jesus walked up uh, when uh, he uh, was had when he walked up to the uh, have the trial uh, before Pilate. Those two trials before Pilate. So I mean, a lot. There's a lot of history that's associated with this. Whether all of that is actually true is a little more difficult to validate. But it's based on the oral tradition when she was there in the early 300s. And so there's a fair amount of circumstantial evidence that we really do have the kingdom of Jesus. We know where Jesus was born, in other words. Wouldn't it be great to go and visit all these places now, take a field trip? That would be fun. I'd love to do that. I really would. All right, let's move into chapter 16, the last book. Because now, look, we are to finish this. Fred's telling you, got to finish, got to finish. Actually, he's not. I'm making that up. When the Sabbath was passed, what does that mean? It's Sunday. Pass, pass, the Sabbath ends, sundown, Saturday night. And so the beginning of the Sabbath would be midnight and past. So this is now Sunday. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome. Mary the mother of James. That's uh, well, it um, doesn't matter anyway. And Salome, again, that's Zebedee's wife, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Now that's, again, that's important. It's a piece of information, but it's an extraordinary act because they must have assumed, they must have believed that they are going to be able to get into the tomb. And it tells us, Mark closed chapter 15 by telling us, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus was laid. That's why the next verse, remember, there are no chapter breaks in the original uh, gospel. It's just, okay, how did they know where to go? How did they know what to do? Yes, Mary Magdalene 
and Mary, they'd seen this. And so they must have assumed that they're going to be able to get those Roman soldiers to roll that stone away, which would not have been an unusual thing to do because the family normally did that, but Jesus doesn't have a family. So these are his disciples, these women disciples, often what they were called. Do women normally do that now? Actually, uh, often they did because of the family. It was, a, no, it was the family of whoever it was that died. I would usually go and pack the linen shroud body, etc., with spices. So they're not doing something abnormal here. But what is intriguing is they're assuming they can get in. Because this isn't just a normal burial. This is the burial of an enemy of Rome who was executed by Rome. I mean, you always have to keep that in, you know, we are thinking about it because we know what's going to happen all that stuff, but these don't know any of that. And they're trying to determine, are we going to be able to get into them? Well, they're assuming they can. And so, again, it's women who are doing this. Very early of the first day of the week, again, reminding us this is Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us? The entrance of the tomb. Looking up, they saw the stone roll back. It was very large. And in the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in white robe, and they were alarmed. Other gospel accounts tell us it's an angel. And there actually are two angels. Mark doesn't tell us that. And so you, you just... <laughs> You're trying to imagine the position you're in of these three women. Trying to figure out how they're going to get the stone rolled away, but they're still going to try to do it. And secondly, they go, the stone's rolled away, and they see this sitting on the ledge. As I explained to you what that would have looked like, sitting on the ledge, they see this young man in a white robe. We will learn that's an angel. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who's crucified. He has risen. Actually, that's really not a great translation because the verb is in the passive voice. They're translating as if it's an active voice. It's really in the passive voice. But more correctly, it should be translated, he was raised. That's lit. Do you understand the difference? In other words, if it's in the active voice, he's risen. The passive voice is he was raised. Somebody raised him. And I, okay. In other words, he's, he's not here. He's been resurrected. Set the place where, see the place where they laid him. And so they would have observed that. Because the Bible tells us in Mark's, in uh, Luke's gospel and in Matthew's gospel that the linen shroud is there. And the sodarion, which was the napkin that they lowered over his face, was also lying there at the head. It was neatly wrapped, neatly put together which again is, is one of those extraordinary pieces of evidence for a resurrection, not being stolen. But go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, I, I know if you can remember, if you go back to a previous chapter, Jesus had said to the guys, I will see you in Galilee after I'm resurrected. Whether they understood all that, of course, is always problematic at that point. But isn't it interesting that they say, go tell his disciples and Peter. Okay, here's the question. Who are the first witnesses of the resurrection? Women. The women are. 
the women are. They, these three women saw the evidence the resurrection occurred, and the angel told them that it had occurred. And so they say, you go tell the guys. You go tell the disciples, and then dressing, and Peter. So, question. So, I mean, this is, again, the, this, this testimony of, of witnesses are women. That is absolutely extraordinary in either the Greco-Roman culture or in the Jewish culture of the first century. It's a question, so, Jim. Um, why, why do they single Peter out from the disciples? All right, no, wait, uh, Glenn, Bill's asked me a question, too. Let me, okay. his, his started four years ago. Hold on. Why is the phrase, go tell the disciples and Peter? Why is Peter separated out? You know, uh, it, it seems as if uh, Peter's prominence is always a factor in the Gospels, because whenever the disciples are listed, and they're listed in all four Gospels and in the first chapter of the book of Acts, Peter's always first. Secondly, remember that the primary source for Mark when he wrote his gospel was Peter. And so, apparently, thirdly, the angel singles out Peter for probably two reasons. His importance and prominence, but secondly, he had betrayed Jesus. Even when he had said, no matter what happens to me, I will never leave you. And so it would have been, again, a, just a, an encouragement for Peter to hear he's resurrected. And reminding them, again, Jesus said, I'll see you guys in Galilee. And so that, that's going to be one of the reasons why they head up to Galilee, as you already know. Verse 8. Uh, I'm sorry, Glenn, what did you say then? You just answered my question. Thank you. Oh, I did. Okay. Yeah, why was why was Peter singled out from the? Yeah. Okay. What well, you and Bill are both brilliant. Your minds are on the same track. That's really good. Yeah. yeah. Um, Jesus, when he's on trial, he's in front of the Pharisees. He says, "I will raise it up." You know, in other words, he's he's using a personal around. Yeah. So right. He has risen. The answer to that is in Romans chapter 1. He was raised by the Father through the Spirit. That's how Romans 1 and Romans chapter 1, about verse 7 or something like that. Paul, I'm not positive about that verse, but it's, it's right near the beginning. He was raised by the Father through the power of the Spirit. Okay. Everybody on the line all right? Now, um, where am I at here? Verse 8, and as they went out and fled from the tomb for fear and, or excuse me, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Um, those words that are in the end of verse 8 are understandable words. And so I want to make sure that you you have a whole bunch of emotions here. And understandably, this would have been almost an unimaginable, indescribable, inexplicable message to hear. You come expecting to see a dead body. You're going to pack it in spices. And instead, you hear that he has been raised. And he's not there. 
And you got to go tell the disciples about this. And so they are just, they're overwhelmed by this. And so the words, the words that the ESV has, the translation I read from, the words that ESV is translating here, trembling, astonishment, fear, are all that cluster of emotional mixtures that's hard to put in words. The fear is probably, the, the Greek word is phobos, but the, from phobos, the word there has more of a reverential awe rather than cowering in fear in that sense. Do you understand the difference? Now the others, trembling and astonishment. Trembling, I think you would be trembling a little bit. Not even necessarily just out of overwhelming, all-encompassing fear and terror, but you're trembling. You just heard news that that mind-boggling news, and then the astonishment is just, I can hardly believe this. Even though Jesus had been saying this, now they witness it, the astonishment. I can't believe it. It's really happened. But we heard him say he's right, you know, it's just all that, an emotional mixture. How do you put that into words? Well, Mark's chosen three words to summarize an emotion. Astonishment, trembling, and there's a reverential awe. God did what he said he would do. But the Old Testament prophecy said in Psalm 16, Psalm 20, Messiah will be raised from the dead. He will not he will not rot Sheol, which is almost a verbatim quote from Psalm 22. And so it's just all that. Man, if you and I were seeing, how would you put in words your emotional reaction, what you just said seeing? So that's all he's doing. There might be some excitement there. Oh, I think so. All of that is a part of this cluster of emotions. And that that, res, that results in a, a silence. It's reduced to a silence. You just can't hardly put it into words. Now, we are facing the issue that every time Mark is taught, you have to face it. From verse 9 to the end of the book, almost, I'm sure, all of your translations have a little note or a footnote or have a header above this or something. I'm reading to the ESV translation, and their header right above verse 9 says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. Okay? And so this probably needs some explanation. So let me try to explain it to you, okay? Everything coming out of the ancient world was a copy. We have no original text of anything let alone original text of the Bible. Every work is copied. We know how meticulous their copying was. It's why we can be trusting of the authority of God's word and so on. We have over 5,000 copies of the New Testament in Greek. So the, some of the earliest ones, and the earliest ones are from about late 100, late second century. One of them is in the British Museum. It does not contain this. But many other reliable manuscripts do contain this. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a judgment call on our part whether this was in the original or was added later. Because if 
it's not in the original, then this, this gospel of Mark ends very abruptly. And they said nothing, for they were afraid. And that's the end of the gospel, which is an abrupt ending, right? I mean, every, when you read Matthew and you read Luke and you read John, there's not an abrupt ending like this. So, however this, whatever the source of this is, let me make a second comment about it. Everything that's mentioned in this is mentioned in other Gospels or in the book of Acts. So it isn't something fantastic that's added. What is being added is testimony that we see in some of the other Gospels or in the very early part of Acts, chapter 1. And so it's just to keep that in mind. So as far as I'm concerned, this isn't that big of an issue. It isn't an issue where you believe it or not, it's going to keep you out of heaven. It isn't that kind of an issue. It isn't a salvation issue. So it's one of those things that it's called textual criticism. It's one of those things that textual critics have studied this and made conclusions and so on. So again, one more point. What they're going to be, what we're going to be reading about is corresponding to things in other parts of the New Testament. It's not saying something that we haven't already heard about. It's just the question is, was this originally in the, the autograph, the original copy of the Gospel of Mark? When the ink dried on Mark's Gospel, were these verses there or not? When we get to heaven, we'll find out. So if, if the copy that's in the British Museum, what if that was an interrupted copy that didn't get completely transcribed? That's right. That's, I mean, see, that's, that's one of the questions about the New Testament manuscripts that we have. But that's, that's a very, unlike any other book coming out, out of the ancient world, the Bible is honestly, if you're being intellectually honest and objective about it, the Bible is the most trustworthy thing coming out of the ancient world. All right. Let's read, because we Fred's directive is to finish this book, so we got to get moving. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> if you follow the earliest manuscript, we're done. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. We learn that in Matthew and Luke. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and he had been seen by her, they would not believe him. And again, if you go, you go back to the gospel accounts, that's what they tell us. They don't believe it. And so Peter and John run to the tomb. Verse 12, and after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. That's in Luke 24. Who are these two? The Emmaus Road disciples. So we know that from Luke 24. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. And, and so, again, the, the they, these are some of the other disciples. This is larger than the 11. Remember, Judas has committed suicide. Now, this is a larger group than the 11. And so, by the way, I want to address in verse 12, ESV translates it correctly, and he appeared in another form. Now, don't stumble over that. All that means is he's now the resurrected Lord. This isn't what they had known him as when they were with him for three years. They're now seeing the resurrected Christ. So another the Greek word is another morphe, another form. 
This is another expression of who he is. He's the resurrected Jesus. Afterward, he appeared to the 11 disciples as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So all you want to do is connect in verse 11, they would not believe. In the end of verse 12, they did not believe. And then in verse 14, Jesus rebukes them for their unbelief. They are not believing the testimony. They're not believing the witnesses. And so Jesus comes into the room where they're meeting and rebukes them. Why did you not believe the witnesses? And it mentions, he mentions their hardness of heart because they did not believe. And Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew gives emphasis especially to Thomas, Didymus, because he said he was not, when Jesus showed up to meet with these guys, Thomas wasn't in that room. Thomas comes later. Remember what Thomas says? Right. I'm not going to believe unless I can put my fingers in his holes and in his side. I'm not going to believe. And so this, again, don't be too hard on these guys. You know, all that had, they've been through all that they've seen, all that they've witnessed. And now they're hearing the testimony. He is risen. He's not in the tomb. Oh, come on. I don't, where did you get that? I mean, that's kind of this almost cynical doubt because it's so fantastic to believe this. Is it really true? And of course it is. And they say Jesus makes 10 post-resurrection appearances. I one time did an itemization of all that, but there are 10 separate post-resurrection appearances that Jesus makes. They're not all to his disciples, but most of them are. And it's just to confirm that what the witnesses had seen is absolute truth, and he validates that numerous times. Any questions? I, I would say that is probably part of it. What was the question? What was the question, yes, Jim? Yes, go ahead. What? What was, the, what was his question? We couldn't hear. His question was, did, did they, is, was there doubt due to the fact that women were the witnesses? And I suggested, yes, possibly it was. Okay. I, I had a question, too, for verse 12. Is that the yeah. walk to Emmaus? Is that what? The walk to Emmaus. That's right. Yeah, this is the uh, road to Emmaus that's recorded for us in Luke 24. Okay, thank These you. are the two Emmaus disciples. All right, uh, we're in uh, verse 15, uh, actually uh, ready to start that. And he said to them, go into the world and proclaim the gospel of the whole creation. And again, that's just the variation. He repeats that numerous times, what we sometimes call the Great Commission. He gives the assignment to the, to the men. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now, um, you see Jesus laying down something that is, again, in numerous places in the Gospels, and it's in the book of Acts, and it's in the New Testament. There are two going to be two responses to Jesus. There are going to be those who believe the Gospel message, and there will be those who reject the Gospel message. Those who believe receive eternal life. Those who reject will be condemned. 
Now, Mark does something here. Whoever believes and is baptized, um, this this was a, a fairly normal aspect of first century Christianity, a fairly normal aspect of those very early decisions for Christ. You see it in the book of Acts. You see it in a number of people. There is that inward decision of your will to accept the message and that outward expression where you now are publicly identifying with Christ. And the expression in the original language is one article and two participles. I know that's that's grammar, and that doesn't mean a lot to you, perhaps, but it is to stress these are two separate acts, an inward acceptance by faith and an outward expression of what you've just declared by your faith. Because that, and this is something I think sometimes even today in the 21st century, we forget what the importance of baptism is. Baptism is you are publicly identifying with Jesus. It is a public expression, a public witness, a public affirmation, a public declaration, a public proclamation that I now belong to Christ. I now am dead, buried, and resurrected with Christ. I mean, it's all of that is reflected in that ordinance. And this gets a little bit for some people, but there are some that argue you must be baptized and you're not saved. That is, that is a hard thing to prove when you look at the entire New Testament teaching. It's an outward expression of something that's happened, and it, it occurred very quickly, because in the Jewish world, which is all early believers were Jews, you, you are now publicly making a statement. Jesus Christ has fulfilled the old. I'm now identifying with the new covenant. Jesus said it, and when he instituted the Lord's table, he holds up the cup. This is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant era, new covenant age has begun. And so that's, that's why that's so important. These are tied together in a way that they're linked inextricably. The inward produces the outward expression. Correct. You have a lot of people who receive Christ on their deathbed, and they don't have time to get into their Sunday best and wait for the two week baptism that's going to be common house in the program. If they receive Jesus Christ there and they are not officially baptized, they are in heaven when they die. You have some of the bodies present with the Lord. Yeah. yeah. So the the in verse fourteen carries a different meaning than the believe in verse sixteen. It does. Um, is it the same word in Greek or pistis, pistuo in the verb form? So was there? It wasn't really a condemnation or a question about the disciples' depth of their faith or their belief in this. Them, was it? No, I, it's, it's, it's the, they did not believe, they're, they're not believing the witness. It's not a statement, it's not a characterization of their personal faith in the person of Jesus Christ and what he did. They're not believing what the witnesses are saying. That is root. 
they were not believing his resurrection. That's right. That's right. They were not believing the content of that message to witnesses are saying. And therefore, they are not at this point believing that he is resurrected. That's why he shows up. And says, okay, you, st- you still doubt? I mean, this is, this is no doubt, uh, as I think it, it is. This is one of his first ap- post-resurrection appearances. His first appearances are to the women, Mary and so on. We saw some of that. We'll see, we're going to see it. No, we won't see it. But you see it in Mark's gospel. I see it in Matthew's gospel. You see it in John's gospel. The extended conversation between Mary Magdalene and Jesus. Mark leaves all, that's typical Mark. He leaves all those details out. He's interested in one thing. There was a resurrection. Did I get to your question? I was just wondering if he, uh, Jesus had some question as to their no, I don't. Authenticity of his no, I think that's why in his appearance to them, that confirmed, yes, this, what the witnesses are saying, this really did happen. But it also shows, I mean, that's why Didymus Thomas is such an interesting figure, because he doubts, and then when he sees, remember his, his expression is, his exclamation is, my Lord and my God. That is absolute proof that this has happened. All right, we're running that clock. We're down to the last minutes. Fred's admonition is haunting me. Here we go, 17. And these signs will accompany those who believe. Now, look, that, that, that word signed there, these are the messianic miracles, the messianic signs. Listen, what Jesus did, the apostles will do. You follow me? They're the messianic signs. And so that's why in those early chapters, well, almost the whole book of Acts, but you see the apostles doing those same signs, healing, giving sight, raising, even raising the dead, doing incredible things. And so he just itemizes some out. And cast out demons, and speak in new tongues, pick up serpents. Paul did that in the island of Malta. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick. They will recover. And so these, these various miracles that are itemized in verse 17, these are the messianic miracles that Jesus did. And he said, you will do the same things I did. And all Mark is saying, this is exactly what happened. And then verse 19 and verse 20 it's a really it's an interesting structure in Greek. It, you don't see it in the English language. But verse 19, on the one hand, then the Lord Jesus, as he had spoken to them, was taken up to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 20, on the other hand, they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The structure of that in Greek is really interesting. On the one hand, Jesus is taken back to the Father. On the other hand, in obedience, they go out and tell the message. So you have this fantastic conclusion to the ministry of the Messiah Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He ascends back to the Father and sits down at the right hand. His work's done. And these guys then, on the other hand, take the message to the world. And that message is confirmed by the signs that we just read about in verse 17 and 18. And so whether or not verse 9 through 20 is in the original Mark, it's in all the other places. 
everything that we've read about is in the other Gospels or in the early chapter of Acts. So it's not recording, it's not talking about, it's not summarizing something that you don't see anywhere else. It's summarizing what we already know. So whether it's in or not is not that crucial in terms of what is being communicated to us through the Gospel of Mark. Well, Fred, Scott, my boss, we did it. We finished the book of Mark. Are there any questions? Because I'm going to take a couple of minutes to introduce what we're going to start here next week. But are there any questions on the Gospel of Mark at all? No. Nope. Anything we've covered either this morning or in the last months that we've been on Mark? It's good. It's a delightful little gospel to study. I, 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 love, to, I love to teach the gospel. All right, I'm going to pray, and we'll let you go. Father, thank you for our time in Mark. It's been an extraordinary study. It's one of the, it's the shortest of the gospel accounts, but it's, uh, it's like a docudrama, bang, bang, bang events. But he's giving us the highlights, the important highlights of Jesus Christ. The thesis is verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we have seen that unfold in these 16 chapters. It's been a joy and a blessing to study. We pray for a number of the guys here in our group. Think of John Phillips. Uh, we, we, we pray for him. Continue to commit him to you. May, his great, may your grace be sufficient as you encourage him. Pray for Lyle. Continue to lift him up to you. And we trust every other guy that here. I don't know all their issues. I don't know other struggles. You do. Meet each one according to your perfect will. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus. It is his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension back to the Father. That was the, was the transformational event of history. It's changed us, and we want to be the agents of your transforming grace to others. So commit this to you. Ask your name in, in your name, uh, Jesus, we pray. Amen.